Welcome back to another episode of the Ecumen, where we're going to present the Baltimore Catechism, Lesson 3 today. So uh, this one, you know, an, an easy, light topic compared to uh, Lesson 2. We're just going to talk about the unity and uh, trinity of God. So <laughs> <laughs> That's it, Pete. <laughs> we're, we're going to not fail where other men have failed on here, so uh, we're going to avoid the Unitarian approach, we're going to avoid the Muslim approach, we're going to avoid the Jewish approach, we're going to try and go stick this just with the Trinity here. Um, we'll include as much as we can in the description uh, when we talk uh, about the Trinity, the Divine Persons, whatever, Augustine and some others. There's a bunch of people who've written on it, but we're going to cover this one in as much accurate detail as we can cover without uh, going astray here. So I love when Pete says we'll throw a link in the description, because I know that that is him and not me doing it <laughs> later on it'll be great it'll in be post-production great. <laughs> i'm gonna start saying <laughs> so kicking it off with question 24 here is there only one god yes there is only one god now when we say one god though this is where we're going to go into detail about god is that this is where we're going to sit there and we we have pop culture that says well jews and muslims and christians i mean they all believe the same thing right mm-hmm. i mean of course they do Mm. Uh, but no, yeah. but no. Uh, this is where our, for me, dog. <laughs> <laughs> this is where our problems start to come in, and that we're going to go into the persons of God and where the divisions start to come in. So at first, it looks like it's fairly simple, and this is where everyone accepts the Old Testament, and on, only because the Son and the Holy Ghost only appear in the Old Testament as symbols. So we can see it in the temple when we look at the Ark of the Covenant and the offerings made to the Father and the fact that the menorah with the lights are in the temple for the Holy Ghost. And we see on the side we have the uh, chalice with manna from heaven, which is symbolizing the sun. We see it already in the Jewish temple that it's, it's there, but only in symbol. We also know, too, that God the Father will not deal with any of us mere humans mm-hmm. um, because we have made a lot of problems, starting out with the fall. And in the end, that's why Christ has to come to tell us and say, no one gets to the Father except through me. He's the mediator that ultimately opens the door so we can actually have anything from the Father. And that uh, relationship there we see when Moses is talking on Mount Sinai to get the commandments, which would ultimately result in Mosaic law and that Israelite nation. So as we move forward here, just kind of keep that in mind that the Trinity was present the entire Old Testament up until now. Yeah, don't don't go overthinking this. You're going to slip into some really weird stuff really quickly, whether it's Arianism, Nestorianism. Like, I mean, just, there's no need to really dig deep. Like, I mean, it is what it is. It's it's a pretty simple concept to accept. I'm going to say one word here that actually makes it all easy. And it doesn't mean, well, easy to follow, but not necessarily easy to comprehend. Faith. Um, our job here is to accept the truths that are handed to us. Our job is not to clearly understand things that are divine. They are so complicated and so above us and beyond anything our mind can comprehend. This mystery is not one to be solved here in a podcast. It is not one that's going to be solved up at the pulpit. It is not one that's going to be solved through your reading and growth as a Christian throughout your entire life. Not on life. the chalkboard with the mathematical proof. No, there's no observation in nature which will actually describe this. In the end, it's a mystery we must accept as Christians. And in the end, this is a faith situation that we have to, to deal with. You cannot be a Christian without faith. Yeah, accept it. You don't have to understand it. And if we are so fortunate to see the beatific vision, then maybe then. And now we'll move on to the next piece here. So question 29, what do we mean by the blessed trinity? And so this is where we talk about the fact, going back to the, the three parts, this is where the three parts there of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, 
are together. So we can't separate the Godheads other than they're three persons. Together they share will, so they, they work together. But that's what the Trinity is. It's all three together. So part of being Christian is believing in the Trinity and following it. Remember the Trinity is another one of these terms. You'll never find it actually in Scripture. It comes later on. I don't remember whether it was Tertullian or one of them who actually coins that verbiage, potentially even origin, one of them. Um, but it gets used later on. So to be Christian, we believe that. Are the three persons really distinct from one another? Um, yes, they absolutely are distinct from one another. And this is where being a Catholic helps to actually see these distinctions much more clearly than you would ever see in any other belief system actually on the face of the earth. In the Mass, we have the opportunity, as we participate with this ritual that was handed us by Christ, to watch on the altar the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ our Lord through the priest who is acting in persona Christe, so acting with the power of Christ, which was bestowed upon him, to offer what once was bread and wine, and now changed by the Holy Ghost into his body, blood, soul, and divinity as an extension of that sacrifice on Calvary and given now to God the Father. Every single person in God is actually participating in the Mass, and Catholics get to participate in that every Mass we attend. So whether... Any day of the week, any time of day, however many times, we can even do it multiple times a day. This is what we get to, to witness and to feel and to be part of at all times. And so this is not a nebulous thing from the standpoint of we know the limits that have been given to us. We know it's mysterious, but at the same token, we know each divine person plays a unique role in our religion. Yeah, I mean, the ma mass honestly is. It's a perfect, it's a perfect uh, example right there. Like you, you are seeing the separate but together parts of the Trinity. Uh, separate is not the right word. Uh, forgive me there, but like you're seeing the different uh, persons of the Trinity at play there. Like all the moving pieces, all of them, yeah. right there. Which you know, whether if you follow, your, if you get into some other odd Protestant church, you know, the Holy Spirit. Believe it or not, contrary to some popular beliefs in Tennessee, or not to hate on Tennessee or anything, I love that state. Is just garbling and whatever weird tongue, you know, gibberish you can come up with. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. That's, uh, <laughs> that's not it. Yeah, exactly. When we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit actually does, it's important to note also that the Holy Spirit is not my personal feeling. It's not your personal feeling. We don't have different versions of truth. The Holy Spirit is a unified set of beliefs. The Holy Spirit is divine, just as Christ and the Father are divine. The Holy Spirit contains truth. So when we look at what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit is there to preserve truth at all times. He won't create contradiction from anything that Christ has told us or anything in the Old Testament. He will only reinforce every single verse of Scripture that any of us have ever read at any point in time. The Holy Spirit does not inspire all sorts of weird flailing about. The Holy Spirit is not something that enables or encourages men to lose control. On the contrary, the Holy Spirit is actually something that inspires us to meekness in the same way that Christ shows us meekness and how we can display it. When we think of meekness, we're thinking of discipline. So our goal here is to listen to the Holy Spirit for our inspiration, our incentive to be empowered, to be virtuous. So again, 
not to lose control in some chapel in some random place wherever it is in the United States and we call it Christian even though it doesn't display virtue. It's not about being humble. It's not about being generous. It's not about being patient. It's not about being balanced. No, the Holy Spirit in his truest form is inspiring virtue in all the best that can be in us. He's inspiring us to be like Christ. Christ did not sit there and talk using unintelligible, nonsensical tongues. Christ did not flail about. Christ did not go and sit there and be dramatic or flippant. Christ was not prideful. Christ is God. In the end, the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us how we can ultimately join ourselves to Christ, and we must have faith in God as Christians so that we can be charitable. First and foremost, if we can do anything by the Holy Ghost and the blood of Christ, it is charity. What could we possibly see that is more charitable than God the Son with the power of the Holy Ghost changing the bread and the wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ to offer it to the Father so that the Father in the Mass is receiving atonement for all of the sins that every person has committed throughout all of human history. There is nothing more beautiful or charitable on this earth than the Mass, unified with Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. The Mass, that was, yeah, it's, I can't really put it any better than that. Like, I mean, that's, that's, it's almost as if God gave us the Mass <laughs> to help us along you our faith journey. He prescribed a method of worship that was fairly specific and detailed and ultimately glorified <sighs> every person. Yeah, not, only, really not, only, yeah. not only to glorify Him, but also to help us, His children, understand in our faith journey. It's like He knows us. <laughs> <laughs> and what we need. And now this goes into kind of another uh, point here in the Catechism. And that are the three divine persons perfectly equal to one another? And here... Catechism says, yes, yes, they are absolutely equal to one another. And I know it may not seem that way because at first glance we're going to sit there and say, well, a father isn't necessarily equal to a son. I mean, the father comes, whatever, we're going to talk about. If they were distinct, separate yeah. entities, yes. And so, and so in the end, the we sit there and see this relationship going back to, to why are they perfectly equal to one another? Well, one, Jesus tells us so, I and the father are one, which means if something is unified, it cannot be greater or less than itself. It is itself. And this is where we go into the, the, the next person of how are the three divine persons, though, distinct from one another, one and the same God. And this is where we talk about the Godhead and that, yeah, there are three divine persons that ultimately are different with different purposes in the divinity. But in the end, they all share that same divinity. That divinity is what makes them unified. And in that divinity, that's where you can't say that one part of divinity is greater or less than the other. And so the Holy Ghost is just as important as Christ is just as important as the Father, and together none of them are actually competing with any one another. None of them is contradicting with the other. They're all in this perfect unison, and ultimately this same order and this relationship is what they're actually working with us. I have to give credit to my Eastern Catholic brothers. Uh, they turned me on to an analogy of the candlestick. You know, if you look at you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost as a candlestick that is lit, radiating light and heat, it, it, separate, none of it works. But it only makes sense when it's all together. And every component is visible, it's distinct, yet it's still just a candle. Man, it's funny how the most complicated of, of ideas can somehow mystically be explained with the simplest of analogies. Uh, to be fair, I just read it, and those guys had like 2,000 years to work on it. So it's, uh, 
it's it's funny how you can distill that down to such a simple thing, but and yet I'm still contemplating it two and a half months later. Uh, yeah, it's so true. It's like you get it, like you don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the the thing we're going to talk about here too, and this is where when we finally get to communion, it'll come in. But this divine nature is essential for our understanding of our religion is that uh, Peter tells us one of the things that we're trying to do in the worship of God is ultimately partake in his divinity. There's going to be a sharing and a distribution of divinity that goes along with Christ's work and the mass and the the life that we all live, because that's the only way we're ultimately going to end up getting to heaven is by sharing in that divinity. And the only way we can partake in the divinity is by ultimately submitting ourselves to the will of God. So there's a lot of beauty in it and a lot of different piece parts. Again, the symphony is probably the best analogy to play off of here and explain why there are unique functions of the divine persons and unique perspectives that we all have of the Trinity. But in the end, it's completely in unison, completely perfect the whole time. Moving on to question 33, can we fully understand how the three divine persons, though really distinct from one another, are one and the same God? And this is where we go back to what we just said before. This is a mystery, folks. There is no way we will ever understand God. And one of those beautiful things that we're going to contemplate as Christians when we worship, when we read scripture, when we pray, there are things about God we're never going to fully understand. And even if we get the luxury of going to heaven based on the fact that we aligned our will and we did everything we were supposed to do, you know what he's never going to give us? Full and complete understanding of everything that he is in his divinity because that's not our job. We are to contemplate it. We are to get what we can from him. And to be fair, every single day in eternity, you will get one more little shed, you know, one more little shred of what he is. But in the end, you could go all of eternity. And because he is infinite and he's all powerful, as we talked about in the previous lesson, uh, there's no way you'll ever get all of him. It's beautiful in that he can give us so much. Um, but we should never expect that we will fully understand how he actually works together in the three divine persons, how divinity actually works or what divinity is as compared to human nature other than human nature being finite divinity is infinite there's so many pieces to this thing just looking at the nature of god alone you could spend an eternity on it is what we're trying to say and never actually understand all of it and yet you really don't have to that's that's the best part you just need to know this to be true through faith and you can spend Literally, in turning it, as Pete said, but at the same time, uh, just get comfortable with the idea. This is where Unitarians and Muslims and Jews and Mormons and all the, the Aryan heretics, the Nestorians, and so on and so forth go off the rails. What they're trying to do is come up with this scientific explanation of divinity, which never suffices. And worse, not only does it fail to describe God, it actually ends up in a situation where we have now taken God's divinity down a notch just in trying to understand it. This is not something we were ever supposed to do. So when we have Jews who sit there and try to tell us that the Messiah has not yet come, well, and that they basically ignore the Holy Ghost, this is not the Trinity. They've seen parts of it, but they've now walked away from the truth of the Trinity. Muslims deny the divinity of Jesus Christ, and in that failure to acknowledge the fullness of the Trinity, as well as the Holy Ghost, 
they've gone off the rails. They call Christians pagans because we believe in the three divine persons of the Holy Trinity. This is false. And ultimately, all false ideals cannot be of God. When we look at Unitarians, Unitarians talking only of the Father and not of the Son or of the Holy Ghost, again, falsehood. And we keep going. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses talking about either becoming gods or that Jesus Christ was, according to their interpretation of John 1.1, a god, meaning there are multiples. This is complete paganism and falsehood. They are not even Christian when you deny the divinity of Christ, his placement aside the Father as part of the Holy Trinity, as a person of the Holy Trinity. We have to be very careful not to try to explain away all of the different facets of divinity with some sort of scientific measure made by imperfect human eyes in this imperfect existence, especially from people who have walked away from God to make it even worse. Our job is to accept, as Brian said, the Trinity as the truth, the Godhead, the singular divinity of God without question. It's pretty straightforward if we have the humility to accept it and the faith to believe it. We need to be wary of those parties who are interested in dissecting divinity for their own personal desires. This is the beauty of the Catholic faith, as it is something that was handed to us by Christ himself and preserved by the Holy Ghost. This trinity we must accept as it is and not try to change it, no matter how much any one of us may desire it for any particular reason. And so this leads us to the last question of this lesson here. What is a supernatural mystery? So uh, we'll back up a little bit before we go and answer this. So the trinity. <laughs> Everything we just talked about. So the, the thing we're trying to divide up here, though, the, I think the focus area is going to be the supernatural piece, is that we have three different types of nature here that we need to address, and that would be the supernatural brought up here, which is of God. You have natural, which is of his creatures, and what we hold in our human nature and ultimately the nature that's on earth, again, created nature. And then there's the other one, preternatural which is just weird. And so this is where things that go oddly and you see something that you didn't expect to see or you hear something you didn't expect to hear or things move or other oddness happens in your existence that you would attribute things to something. Things that go bump in the night. Yeah. UFOs, Pete. Yeah. Praetornatural is the other one. So Praetornatural is it's not necessarily God that's doing it. There are things that can happen because angels have power, because, honestly, saints were given power. You have all these things that can happen that aren't necessarily God, and that's where prayer natural exists. So when we talk supernatural mysteries, we mean mysteries of God and God's nature, God's divinity. By contrast, prayer natural is more like an illusion where saints can actually have supernatural gifts, which they exhibit. In the end, all they're showing off is God's glory, God's divinity, and God's power. The prayer natural is more of a trick or an illusion but not actually the miracle or something of God, as one may be prone to think. So when we talk about a supernatural mystery, this is a truth we cannot fully understand, but which we firmly believe because we have God's word for it about what he is, how he feels, what he wants to do, what he's going to do about it, and we take his word for it. But I think one of the, the uh, final points I want to put on this episode here, science cannot describe the supernatural ever in any capacity, 
at all. Science is an effect of the natural and observation. That's where it comes from. Science will never be used to describe the supernatural. And this is where we go back into when we've talked about it before. God cannot prove to the skeptic that he exists if the skeptic only wants to prove himself and his own perception. That's the concern here is that in the end, the person has to be willing with faith and with their will to apply it to understanding the supernatural and what God tells us that he is and believe it. And in there, truth will actually be witnessed and these mysteries will be easier to accept. And ultimately there will be new truth, new pieces of that truth, which we've never seen before, which we'll get. And it'll be really helpful for all of us to become better and to become closer, you know, uh, related to Christ, but we cannot go and put science and supernatural together. These, these streams do not cross. That's very true. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening. So next week we're going to go into episode four. So for anyone who enjoyed this show, please make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're on iTunes or Spotify or SoundCloud, please follow us there so you can get all the updates as we uh, bring them out. As always, St. Joseph, pray, pray for, for us. us.